Alexander, written and read by Oliver Gray, Chapter 8. The next few days, while the boxes were being ticked for Lucy to collect the ashes and take them back to Austin, gave her and Ben the chance to get more comfortable with each other. Ben had no job to go to, so, as they waited, he took Lucy to other places in the area that he thought she might like. He started with Farley Mount, the beauty spot he'd hoped to show Corey. You see that strange pyramid-shaped monument? It's in memory of a horse called Beware Chalk Pits, which fell into a pit in 1733 while fox hunting. Um, am I boring you? Lucy's bright eyes showed he wasn't. Your dad didn't seem interested at all. I was looking forward to showing him round. Well, I'm making up for that. It's great. One day, they walked all along the Itchen Navigation Towpath, starting near Winchester College, where Lucy was thrilled to see the house where Jane Austen had died. From there, they walked through the water meadows past Shurford Lock. Ben explained that children like to swim there in the summer, and for a moment he thought that Lucy was about to strip off and plunge in but she restrained herself. As they strolled on in the watery sunshine, Ben drew the line at exposing Lucy to Eastley, home of Benny Hill and the tornado's Heinz Burt, and instead they followed the navigation all the way to Southampton, struggling through waist-high nettles to a pub called the Fleming Arms, where a plaque confirmed that Bob Marley and the Whalers had played there in May 1973. Who'd have thought that? enthused Lucy. Ben, you're the perfect host. Although Lucy was older than Ben, and from a notably different background, they seemed to get on. After all, they had a lot to talk about, ranging from the practicalities of their situation to the kind of quite deep conversation about life and death provoked by the circumstances that strangers don't normally have with each other. He hardly saw Rosie during this period, so had no idea what she might have thought about him spending time with Lucy. He'd not forgiven Rosie for the indiscretion which had cost him his job. Lucy found a return route on the internet which was less complicated, a flight from Heathrow via Minneapolis. In a move which seemed to draw a line of symmetry with the trip only a couple of weeks earlier to collect Corey, Ben drove up the M3 and round the M25 once more. As they hugged farewell at the entrance to security, agreeing that they would remain in touch, the two of them kissed for the first time. It just seemed okay, and Ben, at least, felt that one chapter of the story was closing as he watched Lucy disappear, the urn with Corey's ashes safely in her rucksack. Lord knew what security was going to make of that, but Lucy had done her research and had the required customs certificate from the crematorium in her pocket. At least the heavy CDs were in Corey's old suitcase, safely in the hold. Barry Mort's anger management course was proving its worth. Frustrated and inwardly furious, he managed to refrain from shouting and lashing out as the interrogation began. A duty solicitor by his side, he mainly looked down, sighing a lot, as he answered Burr's questions with apparent honesty. You will be aware, Barry, that we already have your DNA on file. Can you tell us why Corey Zander's coat has got your DNA all over it? Yes, I can. I already told you he attacked me. He had his bloody hands round my throat. I was struggling, trying to push him away. I thought he was going to strangle me. So of course I touched his jacket loads of times. Bird pulled out the Graham's button badge and laid it on the table. There are several fingerprints on this badge, and one of them is yours. How did it get there? Just the same way. I was pushing his chest, trying to get him to stop. 
I'm sure I touched that stupid badge, so of course my print's on it. So talk me through what happened, starting from when you entered the room. I already told you I was drunk, and I'm sorry about that. I've kept out of trouble because of Shelley. But I won that money, and then... He paused. I don't know why, but that yank just got on my tits. All I did was shout out a few things, and he just went for me. Why do you think he let you go? I don't know. He just suddenly dropped me and walked out. And what did you do? I just sat there for a while, and then I went after him. Ah, so you're admitting you went after him. No, no, I don't mean I went after him in the way you meant. He just went, and then I went. Where were your mates while all this was going on? Dean was in the garden having a fag, and Jason was in the front bar talking to my cousin. They never come in at all. No, but I bet you asked them to help you get revenge on Corey. Listen, I keep telling you I don't want no trouble. That cunt grabbing my throat sobered me up, no problem. I just wanted to get away, and I couldn't see him there anyway. I didn't want to see him. I was fucking bricking it. He's a big bugger. Maybe, but the three of you could have taken him out, two to hold him and one to hit him. I said we should just go. We were pissed off, yes, but we wanted to get away. Someone told us you were shouting abuse at him as he ran away. Yeah, I expect I did. He was a cunt. But I was just, you know, shouting. That's what you do when you're angry. So answer this carefully, Barry. We have several witnesses who have told us that, as you left the room, you clearly said, and I quote, I'm going to effing kill him. Mort looked genuinely cowed and haunted when he heard this. Was it a sign of guilt? Both Bird and Jackson thought it could be. As far as they were concerned, Mort had definitely killed Corey Zander in a drunken rage, with or without the help of his friends. He fitted the profile exactly. He had a record, he had motivation, and he had opportunity. He certainly had no alibi, as he admitted being at the scene. Mort spoke quietly. Yeah, I know I said it, but I didn't mean it like that. It's just something you say. If I'd murdered everyone I said that to, half of fucking Winchester would be dead. He hesitated. Anyway, how was he killed? Stabbed? Shot? I ain't got a knife and I ain't got a gun. Blimey, thought Bird, this guy is cleverer than he seems. He's trying to convince us he doesn't even know what the murder weapon was. I think you know exactly how he died, Barry. Despite his clear guilt, there were a couple of things that might potentially stand in the way of conviction. They'd identified Ben Walker's fingerprints on the bin, but the rest was just a blur of hundreds of unidentifiable prints from people opening the lid. Although the investigating officers were sure that Mort or one of his friends had dropped the brick in there and dragged the body behind it, there was no concrete evidence. The brick, too, had no tales to tell. It had been touched probably by every band that had ever propped that stage door open, but of Mort's DNA there was no trace. Nevertheless, Mort had to be their man, so he was remanded in custody. Bail was not granted. This man had a proven record of violence. Bound up in the practicalities of sorting out the debacle that had overwhelmed him, Ben hadn't had much time to consider his future. Now, as he sat alone in the flat, things felt dark and frightening. He was being ostracised by his colleagues and neighbours. Robert had withdrawn his support, and Diana, even if she'd wanted to, would never have gone against Robert's wishes. Rosie had betrayed him, and now new unexpected elements were creeping in. Threatening messages were starting to appear on his Facebook page. 
tell the filth too much and you're dead. You did it, not Baz. Stay away from our kids, you pedo. Ben bitterly regretted clicking accept to people he may have met in pubs over the years, but in reality hardly knew. Worse, a Facebook page called Barry Mort is Innocent had been set up by his girlfriend Shelley. Like a fool, Ben took a look at it and instantly regretted it. It was full of references to Ben as scum, killer and grass. One message simply said, Be afraid, Ben Walker, we're coming for you. It had 63 likes. When Rosie came in from work, it was time to talk. She had had plenty of time to think things over, and her mood was contrite. I can't tell you how ashamed and embarrassed I am at the way my father is behaving. And I've made things worse. I feel as if I've betrayed you. Believe me, Ben, of course I love my parents, but our relationship is more important than anything, and I'll always stand by you. She was so sincere that Ben was moved to forgive her and start again. There's nothing to be gained from going over the past. I have to admit that I feared our relationship was doomed, but surely we'll be stronger if we stick together. Of course we will. They both cried and held each other. They were aware that whatever happened, a courtroom ordeal lay ahead for Ben, and that he'd need support. Our wedding will go ahead anyway, even if Robert refuses to come. He won't refuse to come. I'm his daughter, and he loves me. At the end of the emotional conversation, they'd even agreed a date. Saturday, May the 25th, and a place, Littleton Church, if it was available. Ben hadn't anticipated a church wedding, but Rosie had her heart set on it, and Diana would have been inconsolable at the thought of a mere registry office event, even if her friends deigned to attend the wedding of a criminal. As they went to sleep, some light seemed to be appearing at the end of the proverbial tunnel. In the morning, that light disappeared. Three smashed eggs adorned the kitchen window, and a spray-painted message had appeared on the front door. Ben Walker equals shit. Even in custody, Barry Mort's tentacles were reaching out. One thing was clear. Wherever Ben's future lay, it wasn't in Winchester. Ben suddenly realised that, with all that had gone on, he had completely omitted to contact his parents. Mid-morning, he phoned his mother in Chumagna. What he had to tell her was so far outside her scope of experience that she was almost lost for words, but instinct kicked in. That's all right, dear. You can come here for a while. An exchange of texts with Rosie confirmed the plan. He would go to the West Country, while she would relocate for the time being to Chilbolton Avenue. She couldn't stay in Taplings Road. It was only a matter of time before some lunatic would push something flammable through the letterbox. In Austin... Lucy took a while to adjust to the emptiness of the house she had shared with her father for so many years. Her exhibition at the Yard Dog Gallery had gone ahead as planned, and some of her work had actually been sold, which gave her a financial cushion for a while. As she had feared, there was no sign of a will, and as far as she could work out, Corey hadn't even had a bank account. His entire lifestyle had been strictly cash-only. One of her first tasks was to contact Lance Wilson's sons, still running the Lancelot chain in East Oklahoma. They only had vague memories of Corey, but expressed their condolences, of course. The entire Wilson inheritance had gone to them, since Corey hadn't been Lance's son. She momentarily thought about asking for financial help, but pride ruled that out. The community in Austin couldn't have been more supportive. The Austin-American statesman, 
had already run an illustrated obituary, identifying Corey as one of the city's most respected musicians. Surprising, as they had never run a feature on him before. Friends of Corey visited one after the other to pay their respects. Realising that Lucy was likely to experience financial difficulties, all sorts of suggestions came out in conversation. A tribute concert. A CD of Corey's songs to be recorded by various friends. A Kickstarter campaign for Lucy herself to record some of his songs. This put a seed into Lucy's mind. Might there be royalties still owing to Corey? She discussed this with Corey's friend, John D. Graham, who was quickly able to tell her the unwelcome truth. If he'd received no royalties in his lifetime, he certainly wouldn't get any after his death. The labyrinthine state of the music business meant that it would be impossible to trace where the money had been going. Expensive legal action might conceivably have brought results, but was it likely? Larry Goldberg, for example, had been dead for a decade. What about the Chocks and the Grams back catalogues, freely for sale in all the local record stores, along with remasters, reissues, compilations of demo tracks and live bootlegs? That, John assured her, was the nature of the music industry. Forget it. One thing Lucy was able to do was replenish shops like Waterloo and End of an Ear with stock of the Corey Zander Live at the Saxon Pub CD, which she'd hoped to sell on the UK tour. She'd half killed herself lugging them back from Winchester, but now she was glad she had. Mysteriously, all stock of these rare items had suddenly sold out all over Texas. She made sure the transactions were done on a strictly documented sale-or-return basis. As for memorials, tributes and the like, Lucy put them on hold until she had had time to consider all the possibilities. She couldn't even decide what to do with the ashes, so for the time being simply put them on the windowsill. For now, she needed to work. Strangely stimulated by the extreme events, she started to paint, draw, and even, using her father's battered old acoustic guitar, write a few new songs. Returning home, tail between legs, is a sobering experience for anyone. In his mid-twenties, settled in a good if unexciting career, Ben would not have expected to find himself being woken each day by his mother with a cup of tea before being presented with a full English breakfast. His father was long retired and beginning to be rather frail. The couple were in a settled routine revolving round gardening, walking the dog, attending parish council and WI meetings, and very occasional visits to the pub for meals. They listened to Ben's story with a complete lack of comprehension, but instinctively wanted to help him in his time of need. "'You can stay here as long as you like, dear,' Mrs Walker assured him. Ben wasn't sure about that. Compared to Chu Magna, Winchester had been like Las Vegas. But what alternative did he have? He'd taken the car with him, so he was able to travel to Bristol and Bath in search of work. In the short term, he was still on full pay, but that would soon end. Besides, he needed to be occupied. Whenever he had nothing to do, confused and frightening thoughts would crowd in on him. Why had life decided to treat him so unfairly? Ben now knew only too well what panic attacks were. One time he came over faint in the Broadmead shopping centre in Bristol. He was confused by the artificial lights, the hubbub of noise and the crowds of people around him, and had to sit down on a bench for a few minutes to get his breath back. He almost felt as if he were having a heart attack, although he knew that was ridiculous. On another, even more frightening occasion, he'd had an attack of vertigo while walking across the Clifton Suspension Bridge. 
It was a sunny afternoon in this lovely beauty spot, and he wasn't feeling suicidal at all. But all of a sudden, he felt an almost irresistible urge to hurl himself off. Of course, generations of suicides in that spot had led to wire meshing being installed, making it quite impossible for anyone to jump, but it was frightening nonetheless. He had to crouch on the pavement for a while before he dared to continue, and several people cast him strange glances. What was that weirdo doing? Ben felt he wasn't in control of his own destiny, and when his mother found him weeping in the kitchen one night, she insisted on taking him to the family GP the next day. Dr. K was very understanding when confronted by an abridged version of why Ben had suddenly appeared in his surgery again for the first time since he was a child. It's only to be expected that you would feel unhappy and confused after what's happened to you. It's natural, Ben. I'm going to put you on antidepressants for a while, just a short-term thing until you get your life back on track. The pills, some kind of Prozac affair, started to kick in within ten days, and Ben set out to find some work. In Bradford-on-Avon, renovation work was being carried out on two of the locks on the Kenton-Avon Canal, which passed through the picturesque town. It was voluntary work, but it offered social interaction with a group of friendly, open-minded alternative types who liked to socialise in the evenings. Before he knew it, Ben found himself working behind the bar of a canal-side pub called the Narrowboat, and was not getting home till late at night. The doctor had said the trick to banish dark thoughts was to keep himself fully occupied, and together with the medication it seemed to be working. He found his new set of friends a lot more stimulating than his ex-colleagues had been. He even found himself fancying a couple of girls on the project. Ben's email exchanges and calls to Rosie were becoming just a little tedious. He wasn't really interested in Diana's latest amateur dramatic production, and he certainly didn't care about Rosie's office gossip. As far as she could tell, things had calmed down in Winchester, with Ben no longer around, and no one having worked out the connection between him and Rosie. She wasn't being hassled. The media had lost interest for the time being, having reported Ben's release and the arrest of Barry Mort and unsurprisingly failed to retract any of their previous inferences that Ben was the obvious suspect. In the meantime, police were clearly gathering and collating their evidence against Barry Mort, pending a trial sometime in the new year. With a pang of something resembling resentment, Ben heard from Rosie that a full-time replacement for him had been appointed at St John's Primary School. Robert, apparently, now harboured no hard feelings. I bet he doesn't, thought Ben. He's not the injured party in all this. More interesting were the emails from Lucy Cruz. Over the winter months, something like an old-fashioned pen-friend relationship grew up. She appeared actually interested in the canal restoration work he would date detail. She reported on the ideas and plans being mooted to commemorate Corey's life, and updated him on the music scene in Austin in general. Everyone here is keen to do whatever they can to preserve Dad's memory. We're making all sorts of plans, but nothing's fixed yet. How's the weather in Winchester? Non-stop sunshine here in Texas. It all sounded very exotic and very attractive, a true community based on communication and creativity. Ben was able to tell Lucy about a development in the narrowboat. I persuaded the landlord to let me run a weekly music night. I booked a few West Country musicians like John Amor and Peter Bruntnell to do acoustic shows in the bar, and they're going down a storm. 
Let's hope no one gets murdered this time, he found himself typing, his finger hesitating before hitting send. Would her sense of humour cope with this? Yes, of course it would. And it did. Rosie came over to visit a couple of times. She hoped to be introduced to his new friends, but Ben found excuses to avoid a meeting. Rosie, for some reason, insisted on wearing her smart estate agent's clothes, even when not working. Would she fit in with his friends, more used to sporting dreadlocks and combat trousers and discussing their itinerant lives on canal narrowboats? Ben doubted it somehow. She did come to one of his music nights, however, and enjoyed Neil Halstead's performance, even buying a CD for the car. He's got a really nice voice. He should go on X Factor, she enthused. Hmm, thought Ben, she really doesn't get it. Rosie was keen to spend time discussing the exact arrangements of the wedding. Could her younger sister Natalie, away at university, be maid of honour? Fine. Could they afford to have the reception at Lainston House? No way. Had he given any thought as to who to ask to be best man? This was awful, as Ben had absolutely no idea who to ask. Even with the Prozac, he felt terribly insecure. He felt that his participation in the wedding plans was half-hearted at best. Was he having doubts? He wouldn't have said so to Rosie, but yes. He knew that the life he had found was unsustainable in the long term, but for the first time in years he felt comfortable. He felt that he fitted in. Ben spent Christmas Day working in the narrowboat. He'd been offered double pay and it was hard to refuse. In fact, it was quite fun, serving turkey with all the trimmings to the old dears in their paper hats. On Boxing Day, he drove over to Winchester to spend the day with his future in-laws. Robert was in peacemaking mode, bent on using the season of goodwill to smooth over their issues. Ben felt that he had more to forgive than Robert did, but after a couple of post-lunch drambuies, they shook hands and agreed with varying degrees of sincerity to let bygones be bygones. In Ben's mind, it was a total victory for the Leighton family, but Diana was delighted to welcome Ben back to the family. And wedding plan-making went into overdrive for the rest of the day. Natalie joined in with alacrity, and the only person not to be insulted at all was inevitably Ben. In early January, Ben received an interesting and enticing email from Lucy in Austin. Had Ben ever heard of South by Southwest? Indeed he had. It was a massive music festival held in Austin each March. Ben had twice been to Glastonbury, but SXSW, as everyone knew it, was a completely different concept. It was held over a period of five days in hundreds of venues, large and small, all over the Texan capital city. It was also a music industry junket. Lucy's question was this. In view of the fact that he'd shown Corey kindness and had been one of the last people to see him alive, would Ben like to attend the festival? The reason, she said, was that a tribute concert to Corey had been programmed as one of the key events of the festival. Far from the sadness associated with their last meeting, this was planned as a celebration of his life and music. Go on, Ben, she concluded. You know you want to. It was irresistible. Ben booked the week of the 11th to 17th of March off work and started trawling the internet for cheap flights. If he saved hard between now and then, he should be able to afford it. The only possible hindrance would be if the trial were to be set for that week, but Ben banished the thought. At last, he had something to look forward to. 
also available in print and Kindle editions. For more information, head to olivergray.com. This audiobook was a DC 10 Tonight production.